Hi, I'm Joanna Robinson. Join us every week on the Prestige TV podcast feed as your favorite ringer hosts like Bill Simmons, Van Lathan, Mallory Rubin, Sean Fennessy, Chris Ryan, Julia Littman, and many more cover the latest episodes of your favorite TV obsessions. From boardrooms to throne rooms to courtside and through the mushroom apocalypse, we'll be here throughout the week breaking it all down. Subscribe to the Prestige TV podcast feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about TV. So bear with us. Later in this episode, I'll be joined by Christian Manju, the Romanian master filmmaker, best known for 2007's unforgettable abortion drama, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. His latest film, which is available on VOD right now, is called RMN, which translates to MRI in English. It is one of the most exceptional social dramas in recent years. Had a really nice time talking with Christian. He's a very, very bright guy. This is a complicated movie about xenophobia, misdirected rage, a lot about not just Romania, but our times here in America. I hope you will watch this movie, or maybe rent this movie at home, and then listen to our conversation because we go into a great bit of detail. And he really is one of the great filmmakers living in the world right now. But first, completely different energy. Um, I want to talk to you, Amanda, a little bit about kind of what's been happening over my content weekend, what I've been consuming. So I've appeared on a couple of podcasts talking about TV shows. I listened to one of them. Thank you very much. Uh, one of them was about Succession, which concluded its series run after four seasons on Sunday. And then the other is Barry, which also concluded its four season run, which I've been podcasting uh, with Bill Hader about throughout the last couple of seasons. And I also saw, and I know that you also saw, in that same corridor of time, the new Little Mermaid film. I sure did. <laughs> it's a live action remake of the 1990, or excuse me, 1989 Disney classic. and. I'm probably doing a little small sample size theater here, but it certainly had me thinking about the state of the arts, the state of television, and the oh, state of movies. So this is this is what you're doing now. You're just like every movie we see, <laughs> you're just going to log on and be like, it's all over. Uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to say it's all over, but I, I had what I feel is a notable takeaway from the experience of watching these three things. To me, this is not necessarily doom and gloom. It's a little bit of an investigation into how we got here. And I wanted to get your perspective. I also wanted to know what you thought of Succession because okay. we haven't talked about it. And it has become, of course, like, I think the lightning rod cultural Absolutely. topic of the last few yeah, days. And, and certainly the season has been widely acclaimed. So maybe we'll just start with Succession before we dig into the big grand question of movies versus television right now. What do you think of the finale? They landed the plane. I'm a huge fan of Succession. I think it's, I, I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible uh, work of art, of writing, of filmmaking, of acting, of music. You know, I know that Nicholas Patel is like pretty celebrated for his score, but I thought the finale really drove home what an essential part of the, the television show and the and the tone and the and the achievement um, his his score is. 
So A-plus stuff. I have felt that season four has been moment to moment and even episode to episode extraordinary and in some a little wobbly. Like, Mm -hmm. just, you know, I think you were quoting House on the podcast saying that this show kind of loses it, lost its center a little bit um, once, spoilers for Succession, I suppose. Yeah. um, Once Brian Cox left the show. And I... I, you know, I agree with that. And mm-hmm. I think that it's both like a bold structural choice to to get rid of Logan so early in the season and and is like playing with the idea of TV in an interesting way, but also definitely puts put the show off its square. And I, especially the last few episodes, was feeling them the the inconsistency almost moment to moment as they were kind of getting to the ending, but they picked the right ending, which is really hard to do. And I thought most every scene was like completely extraordinary. Even if I like didn't totally understand how they got everyone got to where they got. Yeah. I, I, in the in like in the you you pointed out on the podcast with Bill, which I thought was great. Um that some things were too tidy and some things like were kind of, you know, there's some pacing issues, like whatever. They got to the right ending and moment to moment, it, it's like amazing to watch. Yeah, I think finales are really challenging. I, I liked talking with Andy Greenwald about it too on The Watch and just hearing, I, th- I think he's just incredibly intelligent about this stuff and the decisions that, um, that TV writers make mm-hmm. to end their shows and how they do it and how there's always a kind of awkwardness to some of that execution. But in general, the the acceptance of the audience with the choices that the creators made is also kind of rare in these kinds of shows. And even though I think that it has been widely dissected and debated how the show has ended, I do think most people agree that it was it was good. It was effective. It worked. Yeah. And what's so interesting to me about that is there's very little confusion about the moral or emotional states of any of the characters. They're bad. Yes like, and no. But yeah, but it's so it's so interesting. I, again, I was listening to you and Bill talking um, immediately after the finale, which I you know also affects things. Um, as I was driving into work today, and you were saying that like you know Kendall's bad, but mm-hmm. you still you were like rooting for him a little bit, and yeah. you felt sad watching him in that moment. And I was interrogating my own feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- obviously, that last scene. Um, or that last shot of him, and really like the last three shots of, of Roman, of Shiv and 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 Tom doing their graduate uh, moment, and then uh, of Roman of Kendall staring out of the ocean are like archetypally like perfect, significant. Forgive me for saying Shakespearean, but it is true what Absolutely. the show is drawing on, like amazing stuff, and. And have a lot of weight, but also I was like, I don't feel anything for any of these people. And I've mm. like always hated it. I've just I have always thought that they were bad people. So it has been really interesting to me to watch the show, consume all the content around the show, um, which I think a lot of people do, and I think the ringer is the best at, but is reflective of how we all watch TV now and really what we imbue in the characters and how we try to have emotional relationship with the characters and even um how the show responds to the audience's investment in the emotions. Um, is I, I never rooted for any of well, them. Well, then let me ask you this yeah. question. Do you think that the show had a hero? Yes, Logan Roy. 
in that we were rooting for him to achieve his no, dream? No, but I think that the show's like that's a, that's a protagonist, maybe. And I, I don't. I think Kendall was the protagonist. But like, I sure. feel like, and we we think about modern American twentieth, twenty first century storytelling. Sure, you know, and especially right. movies and television. The hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell idea of storytelling. For sure, then it's Kendall, of course, yeah. But Kendall is obviously a kind of destroyed and craven person who has done terrible, who who killed someone, you know, who betrayed his siblings and his family over and over again, who abandoned his children, who put them in danger, who was awful to women. Like, really not a a, a genuinely immoral person. Right. And… I, I do have kind of uh, like a, I don't know about a relatability. That might be the wrong word. But I, do, I felt for him in a, in a profound way. But he's not heroic. I mean, he had no heroic characteristics, honestly. He just was played by an extraordinary empathetic yeah. performer. And so I, I'm, I'm asking you that question, which is a leading question. Because, you know, the thing that Succession reminds me of is the thing that I care about the most, which is 1970s American movies. Right. You know, and uh, Travis Bickle is a damaged and dangerous person. And yet you watch Robert De Niro, whose films we just drafted on this sure. podcast. Yeah. And you think, how, how did he get that way? Why did the world turn out this way? Is he heroic or is he dangerous? Is he a product of the destructive forces of the military-industrial complex? Is he mentally unwell? Is, it, is he an incel? Like, going through the thought process of understanding a deep character study, which I think that this show ultimately was this kind of menagerie of character study succession. The show... And a lot of shows like it in the last 20 years, what has come to be known as quote-unquote prestige TV, has had most of the hallmarks of the kinds of films that I respond to most deeply. Now, I think that that was an easy observation to make even 15 years ago about the state of TV. So this is not my like a grand conclusion that I'm trying to draw to. But when I put it in contrast with what is at the center of the movie culture, I see something very, very different. Because Succession is maybe not the most watched show, but it is among this kind of cohort of shows over the last 20 years. And I'll, I'll just use the best drama series Emmy winners as a, a lens into what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is the end all and be all of quality, but these are the shows that have won since 2008, the best drama series. Mad Men four times, Homeland, Breaking Bad twice, Game of Thrones three times, The Handmaid's Tale, Succession twice, and Your Beloved, The Crown. All portraits of damaged people betraying, conniving, confusing. I mean, even The Handmaid's Tale and The Crown, which I think are sort of like perhaps more socially minded in terms of their portrayals of women or their portrayals of like reimagining history or the future. These are still like shows about deviance and and underhandedness and a kind of politicking throughout. Like these are all strategy shows in a lot of ways. And they're also shows about like really corroded souls. And you know, put more simply, it's like bad people acting badly and or privileged people acting badly and being or made fun of. people where you're questioning why you're rooting for them. Yes. Very well put. Movies, especially over the last 20 years. With the exception of The Handmaid's Tale, but which I also think is a very yes. unsuccessful show. But I that's agree. Not my favorite show. Yeah. I think a little bit of an outlier on that list. Sure. But nevertheless, still a, a show sure. that is about these kind of moral times. Yes. Um Movies, I think, are defined in the last 20 years by the rise of the superhero film as, like, the linchpin Mm -hmm. of box office success. And then I just, you know, I'm doing a little bit of cherry picking here, but if we look at the Best Picture winners over the last 10 or 15 years, here are some names that come up. The Shape of Water, Moonlight, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Spotlight, Green Book, Coda. Stories that are either ultimately feel good Mm -hmm. or that are, at a minimum, hopeful. Now, Green Book and Moonlight don't have a ton in common, 
But they are both movies that at the end you might feel a sense of up, a sense of, you know, emotional lift based on the possibilities of the future, which is the exact opposite of how I felt about Succession. Was As I was watching Succession, I was like, the world is a pit. Mm-hmm. People are awful to each other. Yes. We built all of these systems to destroy one another. We even kill our families. What a dangerous, weird world we have. And then everybody just cried and was like, this show is magnificent. And then you watch Green Book or you watch Everything Everywhere All at Once, a better film. I think a more successful film, but definitely a film that relies upon the idea of sentimentality and mm-hmm. human connectedness and the power of family in a completely and hope and, inverse way. Yeah. Yes. Movies used to be the place where you could explore much more complicated themes. TV was the place of comfort. TV was the place of we follow our hero and our hero takes us on a journey and they are morally right and they solve the case or they fix someone in the in the in the surgical room or they are, you know, a great lawyer and they win. And it has inverted quite a bit. And I'm I'm trying to sort through why that is. Why why did these two mediums change so dramatically over the last 20 years in terms of what the audience's expectations are and then what ultimately is celebrated? Do you have any idea? Well, one, do I sound crazy? No. I, I mean, what you're saying is is true. And I mean, it's, it's just kind of factually true. And I think some of it is pretty... Well, I have a simple answer okay. for some of it, which is just that... And you said it yourself, which is that um, where people are allowed to take risks in art uh, changed because of the nature of the business. And so in TV... Um, for for whatever reason, I think a little bit because people weren't paying attention and there came some success specifically with Sopranos and Mad Men and um, and 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 the the economics of it just worked out. People were allowed to do bad things or on characters were allowed to do bad things and try different storytelling. And meanwhile, you can't take that kind of risk at a movie theater anymore because you have to put butts in chairs um, with IP in order to guarantee a return on the massive investment that you're making. I mean, it's the same thing as the middle has been cut out of movies. Mm-hmm. And I this is the middle, I guess. As you noted, not that many people watch Succession mm-hmm. compared to many of the other shows on television even. like I, I, I think the, my counter to that, and I can hear people saying that in their minds, is Game of Thrones mm-hmm. is a more kind of genre conventional approach, but the storytelling in Game of Thrones is sure. very similarly brutal and a, and, a similar le- like takeaway yeah. of like the world is dark and people will slit each other's throats except, to win. Except, except for at the end when we discovered the power of storytelling. Which everyone hated. Because <laughs> that's the, that's the still other the most thing. embarrassing thing that's ever that's the happened thing. You know, on the, HBO. The fake everything ever all at once ending of Game of Thrones, people were like, absolutely not. I would not believe that shit. It was terrible. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a poor choice. But nevertheless, I think that you're, you're of course you're right. The, 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 the answer is, is that the economics of the two industries evolved a lot over time. And I am interested in that, and we have talked about that yeah. ad nauseum. And I think that the streaming opportunity created an opening for even more of this kind of storytelling. But to me, that is like a form follows function note. The function was that we needed more TV storytelling and that the, the noisiest shows had these hallmarks. Even if they weren't the most successful shows, the shows that we 
canonize, that we memorialize. The mm-hmm. Wire, you know, Breaking Bad. These shows weren't the biggest shows on TV at the time, but they come up over and over again as we think about the history right. of the 21st century in TV. And then, so the 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 form kind of bends around it. It bends around the function. So our expectation of a good show now is one that has this kind of complexity. Even like a Fleabag or a Barry or an Atlanta, right. these 30-minute series that are among the most acclaimed are stories about these kind of wrung out, destroyed people and these confu- yeah. confusing societal moments. They're all kind of hard-bitten and almost cynical. And I am fascinated by that and how the opposite has transpired with movies where safe harbor for people, like emotional comfort, is what drives business in the movie world right now. Yeah. Super Mario Brothers, at the MCU. Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. That is so interesting. Yeah, but here's the thing is that all of this shows and what you're defining as, and Prestige TV is essentially what what you're talking about. And with the exception, really, of Game of Thrones, like, those shows aren't moving the business for TV in the, in the way that they are for it. They are, what's happened is, is that a group of people who take these things mega seriously and have certain artistic standards and like to talk about them on podcasts started take it like, and that's us started taking television as seriously as we took movies. And in some cases more seriously because the movies are not rewarding that like those standards in the same way. And a lot like our tastes, like the center of culture, as we say over and over again, moved to TV. So I guess it like what the real question is like why are we such sickos that this is all we want to watch and that uh, this is the only definition of good I, to I, to us. I think you're right for the most part that the, I'm talking about prestige TV but if you watch Yellowstone and I have sure it has a lot of the same hallmarks. I mean it is a lot of really kind of damaged people. It's using a more traditional like Falcon Crest style soap operatic approach right. but it's Taylor Sheridan who comes from movie writing who writes anti-heroes, who writes characters that are deeply flawed. Right. And, you know, I'm not as big a fan of that show as I am of some of the other shows we mentioned, but it has really infected even some of the most mainstream TV storytelling. Yeah, but also, like, <laughs> soap operas are also about flawed characters That's who, true. you know, who live in opulent settings and do things and you root for them anyway. So it's not like prestige TV invented. that, Like, Yellowstone having elements of soap opera is... It's it's bridging, like, TV history and what's new about it. Now, maybe, you know, it looks better and it has the American West. And I, I know all the men love the American West. Um, well, I don't, it's not that I think it invented it. I think it's that it became the center. You know, it became sure. kind of the orienting tone and force of modern television. And, and modern TV is, like, is modern storytelling. People don't read as much as they used right. to. They don't listen to things as much as they used to. They spend a lot of time in front of their TV and their devices. And because of that, it's like these things, sorts of things massively influence culture. And I don't, I know that this is, this veers into galaxy brain territory. Yeah. But movies' inability to retain this, and there have been great movies made. It's not that they don't make movies like this, but we lamented the strange and sad box office performance of a movie like Tar, which basically did all of the same things that something like Succession or Taxi Driver did deep character study, complex series of ideas that require a lot of unpacking, wildly interpretive so that like you can see the film through one lens 
or see it through another. I think Succession, it's just been really fun watching people think about, oh, was this a moment when Shiv made her decision to do X? Or is this the moment I, when Kendall could no longer do Y? I mean, he, what what is going on in Shiv's brain is one of my big questions of season four, but that's a different conversation. I uh, I haven't had the chance to rewatch the episode yet, but I yeah. will say that I, it's been persuasive to me that when Kendall sat down in the CEO chair and started talking to Stewie and doing bro talk, that that was the moment that she was like, actually, we can't do this. Yeah, I, I mean, sure. Again, moment to moment, it all makes sense. And I I don't think that season four shift has, has it does not make sense to me. I, I don't get it. Yet. I struggled with it a lot. I, I, I struggled with it a lot. And, and I also thought it was a, lo- a huge burden to put on the shoulders of the biggest dynamic female character to be like she's the one who blew up everything that like that fed into I think a kind of unfortunate perspective that a lot of male viewers have of these characters that I'm sure Jesse Armstrong is aware of but it was like Macbeth is 500 years old yeah you know what I mean and because of that Lady Macbeth is 500 (laughs) years old anyhow that's that's neither here nor there in terms of this bigger conversation but I'm trying to better understand, and maybe it's just because there is a kind of clear dollars and cents approach to paying tickets to go to see movies, whereas on t- at television, everything is at your fingertips and you don't think about the transactional nature of it as well, where it's just like, this is my stories, and I turn on my TV and I watch, mm-hmm. and I can take a chance on something, whereas I feel that I cannot take a chance on a movie. I need to know, and this has informed what I think has ultimately been an interesting comeback for the box office this year, but kind of a bad year for movies. We're 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 in our we're entering our sixth month of the movie year, and I look at my best films of the year, and there are of course a couple of A twenty four and neon films and IFC films that I liked a lot. I loved John Wick four. I thought it was like bravura, you know, Big Ten historical movie making in, in a modern sense. But it's not really a great list, and it's all, we're obviously coming out of the pandemic era and it, the over reliance on IP and you it's know. also this time of the year as you know mm-hmm. and then like come September yeah all the festival films will come out they'll release all of their movies there is a season there's a rhythm to all of these things um so you know we're going to have our big summer blockbuster season which I'm I still am very excited about and then and then the movies will come again. So right. you, you do have to remember like where you are in your in you're your time. Right. Meanwhile, in TV, you're getting every single show that ever existed right before the Emmy voting deadline. Yes. So I, yes. Just well, just pointing it out. It's a fair point. And I'm I'm trying to not conduct this conversation as if like yeah. the world is on fire, because it's not. It's more like the two forms that I think we spend a lot of time on the pop culture side covering quite closely. And, and the ways in which they have converged. We've mentioned this a few times now with the MCU of late. And you were, I think, rightfully giving me shit when we talked about Fast 10. That, like, the episodic nature of TV has also kind of... Infected. Um, and, like, demagnetized the stakes of everything in a way that Succession, in that final episode, I thought to myself, like, wow, this is it. Yeah. This is ending. Yeah. Like, I will never see any of these characters that I have, feel I have built a, a genuine relationship to ever again. And I, I was reading interviews with Matthew McFadden and, and Jeremy Strong, and they were like, I haven't really been thinking about these guys because they're dead to me now. They yeah. think the story's over. <laughs> and with the MCU, I'm like, I'll probably take my daughter 20 years from now to an MCU story. Yeah, that's really dis- that's so depressing. that also, that makes you feel like you are in the same kind of hamster wheel that I felt like I was in when I watched episodic TV in the 90s, where I was like, this just can't even come close to Pulp Fiction. This is yeah. such disposable crap. I, You wrote in the outline, so I know how you feel, but like, doesn't it bum you out? I think we have it the wrong way. I think, okay. I, like, I think that we've reversed it. Um, and I and I understand why. And I do understand that TV is the place now where 
filmmakers like Jesse Armstrong get the chance to take these wild swings and the and make these things and shoot on film and you know let <laughs> let everyone just like improv and 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 be funny and I I wouldn't return it but it's like I do feel that the episodic structure has its limits mm-hmm. um and can start to undermine the character studies that you um that we like so much and I do feel Ted Lasso is a great example of this where the first season was just like a nice story about a guy figuring some things out and like believing you know and hitting the thing on the wall and then um and I just watched it every week and I was like great I watched 30 minutes and I feel good and I could take that in an episodic structure mm-hmm. like forever and then they made two seasons of like I must explore the traumas of myself and everyone around me and invent new ones and try and try to turn it into some sort of like dark prestige character study thing and I, like it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because I just want the other thing and at like a thirty minute drip, I that seems like the right vehicle for a feel good story. Like as you said, I just want to spend some time with my friends. And on the other hand, I sometimes feel like. The longer these prestige series go on, the the more, and this isn't totally true of Succession, though I think season four, it got away a little from them a little more than it did the first three seasons where it's like, at some point, a character study is just like rewriting. If it has to go on forever, it's just rewriting the character. And I, you know me, I like a tight, tight edit. I like boundaries. I like endings. I It just seems like if we switched everything back around if everyone would agree to do that, it would make better art for everyone. But unfortunately, the business does not support that. Well, the the I think where the potential concept of panic can kick in actually alleviates a little bit of your concern there, which is that I think that it is plausible as we are one month into the writer's strike, mm-hmm. as we are potentially on the verge of a SAG-AFTRA strike, as the Directors Guild does not have a deal yet, and as we look at this age of austerity that television is now locked into, and, and movies to some extent, but television more specifically in that shows are being canceled after their first and second seasons. There is no more residual culture. The sense that streamers overreached and overbuilt and now need to scale back significantly or even consolidate and compartmentalize. I said to Andy that I felt like the end of Succession and Barry could be an end of century moment for this era of TV too. And... I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't have a crystal ball. I do think that there will still be so many shows, so many shows that we will n- not know what to do with ourselves. Yeah. We will just be like, you know what? I tried for 10 minutes and I can't. Like, I just don't have time or I can't get through it. But still, it's going to be less, a lot less probably than what it was for the last 10 I mean, years. that's not what I want. That's not what I'm asking for when I want the things to switch and the movies to well, tell, the like, thing, the, the complicated story. Right. No, I yeah. know. That's not, what, that's not what I want. I don't want, like, less of yes. good things. I just think we've mismatched the medium and this and the storytelling a little bit. I, I I think that's ultimately where I'm yeah. where I'm at is that the character study approach often works best in a contained period. It always of time. does. Endings boundaries are good. Well, boundaries are good I, in I, relationships. I, boundaries are good in storytelling. There are exceptions that it's prove the just, rule. Like I mean, to me like course. the Sopranos is an exception that yeah, proves the of rule. Course. Like, the, the Sopranos was like that was our Russian novel of television. Yeah, you know uh, like yeah. we can have those and I like those things. Mm-hmm. But in general I agree with you that two and a half hours, 90 minutes, is a better way to approach these things. I don't see how we're really getting that back anytime soon. But what I, what I, I don't know if I fear it, but I certainly think about these things a lot because of what we do for a living. 
we're going to have less of the good stuff. <laughs> you know, that yeah. that's sort of what it feels like to me is we'll just have less of the good stuff in both directions. I don't know, Bobby, do we sound weird and and um, and old and out of touch? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I feel a lot of what you guys are talking about, especially with like, I have this argument all the time with uh, my partner, Phoebe, who prefers television to movies. I prefer experientially, like sitting down and having the whole story told to me in one sitting. And then thinking about that and thinking about that and letting it marinate, which is, of course, something we talk about on the show all the time. But I do think like our attention spans have changed mm-hmm. and we're more amenable to the notion of an hour of something 40 times than four hours of something one time. No doubt about it. And that's it. just like the, the way that our brains have been rewired in a million different aspects of society. Like it's sports, it's social media, it's movies, and it's television. And I think that we are kind of like running up against that theme in culture in a lot of different ways. Like it's it's the same reason that people don't read as many books as they used to. Like it's hard to focus yourself on one story for that length of time. That's the thing is there are a lot of different influences and reasons that this has happened. It is not just the strictures of movies and television business. I think social media is a great example of something like that. I think you and I are at a different phase of our lives too where we have to be much more mercenary about our time. So certain things we just can't invest in. So maybe we're missing things. Maybe we're missing shows that are not doing the thing. They're they're doing things differently. We're missing, I'm probably not missing any films, candidly. But (laughs) to that point about sitting down and focusing on something, like this is what I wrote down in this outline that I feel is very resonant for me which is that the shifts in storytelling type and tone over time do evolve. And if you look at the history of movies, especially, you can see that the way that the business influences the kinds of things that are made then influences the audience and vice versa. But movies are where focused, active engagement thrived. And TV was a passive medium and is now an active one. And, it ha- and fan engagement and theories and the kind of second screening lifestyle of, mo- of TV watching has completely subsumed the movie culture, like the movie culture that did a lot of those things. It didn't do them in the same ways, but there was this huge apparatus of fandom around films that I don't know if it's diminished, but it's been overtaken by TV. And now m- movies, because people watch so many movies at home, and there's the expectation. I mean, even the people that we, even Bill Simmons, who I love, is like, I'm waiting for John Wick Ford till it comes home. I'm like, Bill, come on, man. I love yeah. you, but you are like, you are on the front lines of John Wick 1 being like, this is one of the great movies of the last 20 years. So yeah, but- because those habits have changed so much, it become, movies become passive. Movies become, I'm looking at my phone while I'm watching the movie, or I'm pausing it and going to the bathroom. All these things that we've talked about over the years and they flipped again in another way and just in the way that they're watched. And I think you're, you're right to bring that up, Bob. I don't really have like a dramatic conclusion to this theory. I did think it was appropriate to bring it up as we engage with The Little Mermaid because The Little Mermaid strikes me as something that I know a lot of people worked hard on and is doing great business, but we just do not need and does not push movies in any direction anywhere. No, So I saw it uh, on Memorial Day uh, during nap time with a bunch of other children, not a bunch of, but I was at like a 1 1 p.m. screening and it was very clear what the purpose was, which was something to take your children to. Mm -hmm. And Disney, for whatever reason, has decided, or I guess the movie theaters have decided that like another re-release of 1989's Little Mermaid isn't going to draw enough people to the theaters. And so they are just Xeroxing it with some truly heinous additions and putting it in as a way, as something to take your children to. And the children mostly seemed to like it. They missed Flounder. So did I. 
And I mean, he was there. He just wasn't what he deserved to be. Exactly. Like, what was that about? I I have no idea. Anyway, so, like, I know why it's there, Mm -hmm. but it's a pure, crass business blame decision. A bottom line. And yeah, and I mean, sucks. I guess you could, if you were, if you were being generous, you could say that they were kind of like updating some of the cultural sure. stuff that wasn't, you know, obviously um, changing the the Little Mermaid to a black character is obviously yes. like, I think representationally meaningful, but not enough so to justify the cravenness that you're she describing. She still is silent for a majority of the film, yeah. which, you I know. Mean, how much I, of that is on Hans Christian Andersen? And a, versus, a lot, yeah. but it's like you're, you're working with the source material, you're working with yeah. the source material, you so, know? Yeah, it's... Let me tell you about my experience watching the movie. Okay. I thought this was an absolutely deranged personal choice by you after, like, a very long weekend, but... It was... Well, so let's set the the stage. You and I flew back from Europe on Friday. We did. It was a a 23-hour travel day. Mm -hmm. We flew from Stockholm to New York and spent two and a half hours at JFK. That flight, that first flight, I think, was eight and a half hours, including Mm -hmm. some solid runway time, some tarmac time. We did not sit together, though I think it would have gone fine based on our previous flight. Yeah. And then we flew from JFK to Los Angeles, which is, an, again, another six hours or so, plus your drive time home. Mm-hmm. So really long day. Saturday, whatever. Sunday, watch Succession, record a podcast with Bill Simmons, and then immediately after I've recorded that podcast, go to see The Little Mermaid at the Alamo Draft House in LA. 9.30 p.m. 9.30 p.m. So there were not a lot of kids in my screening, unlike sure. yours. Were there any other people? It was a sold-out packed house. Wow. And it was... Was it mostly people Bobby's age? There, Yes. In fact, I sat next to two young women. Let me tell you about them. Um, they were wearing uh, head-to-toe Little Mermaid regalia. They sang along to every song. They were actualizing the, uh, the, the notion that I had in my mind when I sat down to watch it, which is movies have just become karaoke. That, and that this was a live karaoke session it was reverse rotoscoping. It was like Richard Linklater shoots a film and then animates over it. This was de-animating an animated movie and then just making it over again so that people can have a party in the movie theater and have a nostalgia moment. Now, obviously, kids watch the movie too, but I showed my daughter the animated Little Mermaid yesterday mm-hmm. and she was wrapped. Yeah. And it was really good. Yeah. It's a very well-made animated film. It's very film. good. And it's also... Messed up. Well, it, it, well. it has complicated storytelling. It has problems, I guess you could say. Yeah. But it's 83 minutes. Yep. It flew by. The animation is gorgeous. It's the songs beautiful. are the, A+. Plus. They listen, are the A-plus oh, songs. On. I, I want to make a note about animation and like and the color. Like mm-hmm. the actual, you know, it is art. You and I saw a beautiful Ellsworth Kelly that we'd never seen That's before right. at the Tate Modern in London. And it's like that level of saturation. Just incredible stuff. Yes. Reds, and greens, blues, yellows. The live action popping. version is like a dark, sludgy CGI underwater mess. They did not have James Cameron's technology. They did not. They have a lot of shipwrecks, and it just, it looks really bad. The last third, well, like, the final set piece, like, I don't even know what to say. It was like Marvel took over the making of Disney and made it worse. One thing that, one choice that they did make to differentiate, and they made a couple of choices, but one thing they did do is they attempted to effectively, like, ground the story more, make some of the creatures seem more real, hence your flounder point, make the stakes seem a little bit different. So, for example, like, a notable cut, which I thought was just abominable, was the chopping of the French chef song, Les Poissons. Les Poissons, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is just a hilarious and fun part of the movie. Yeah. My, when, great, when Alice and I were watching it, she was just like, wow. You know, like, yeah, well, of it's course. Very, it's cartoonish, and yeah. that was why Rob Marshall, the director of this movie, cut it. But 
it's a movie for kids. It's okay for movies for kids to be cartoonish. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be realistic portrayals yeah. of imaginary creatures, mermaids. So I find this sort of like intellectual backing of the movie to be deeply flawed. I'd like to talk about the music. Um, fire away. So part of your world, it might be all-time number one. like On the Disney canon or in the history of well, the written word? certainly the Disney canon, but it's like up there in terms okay. of like movie anthems. that I can't tell you Let's how— Let's do the list right now. When You Wish Upon a Star in the conversation. Mm, part of your world's more important. Um, that's just— that's, And it's just also just like an incredible— That's late millennial like, brain right there. No, but also just like an incredible summary of like the American condition, you know? Um, while also just being a banger, mm-hmm. hugely important to me. Knew every word. I think it's one of the first songs that I ever sang my son because when he was really little and I was trying to sing to him, I realized that there aren't that many songs that I know like every single mm-hmm. word of. Can you like, get into that register? The aerial register? No, 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 no. Um, that's, that's some that's I was some singing at a, at a lower thing. But, you know, when you're not singing along to something, how many songs do you know every single word, every single beat? It turned out I knew fewer than I thought. But let me tell you, I know every single word of part of your world. So saying it to him a lot, it's amazing. It's so good. I felt that Halle Bailey did a pretty good job. And I got to say, she has the high note, you know? And so... She can sing. I thought she was good. This has nothing to do with her. She has the high note. So that one was okay. What they did to Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl... War crime. I was outraged. Yeah. To The Hague. Just, like, the the arrangements in the original and, like, the, you know, the harmonies, et cetera, are so funny. And it's, they just get rid of all of it. Yeah. Shocking. I've been looking. And you're sitting on gold <laughs> and then you just remake it in this, like, milk toast. Like, what the fuck? It's. How dare you? It's tough. It, it was, watching it, I was reminded of what a deep memory and understanding of all those songs I have. I was seven when this movie came out. Yeah. I'm sure I saw it in sure. theaters multiple times. Um, nothing, None of that should have been changed. None of the songs should have been cut. The Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I'm very hot and cold on, the new song was not good. The scuttle rap, not a fan. I like, was really upset. I did not enjoy Aquafina's choice. I don't no. know why Aquafina is making Renfield and The Little Mermaid and not more movies like The Farewell. I guess Money, which, shout out to her. But like, Aquafina also, like, is talented. What know, are we doing? Hollywood is not making that many movies like The Farewell, of as course. previously discussed, which sucks. I loved The Farewell. But, I, I was, I was, uh, I was pretty depressed watching the movie. The other, here's the most important thing to me. This movie is two hours and 15, 15 minutes Oh my God, long. it was so long. There's like 10 minutes where you have to learn about Eric. No one cares about Prince Eric. You know, he has, like, he sings to the coastline and is like, we have to like explore other cultures, which is a good lesson. Sure. But like, no one cares. You know, I don't care. The point about, you don't, no one cares about Eric. That's one of the essential lessons of The Little Mermaid and like Disney Princess thing is that you actually, the prince doesn't matter. I liked Melissa McCarthy. She was very good. I thought good. she was very good. I thought good she as was Ursula. really good. Uh, I agree with that. I also want to give a special shout out to, let's see, I wrote her name down, Jessica Alexander, mm-hmm. who shows up for Vanessa? one scene as Vanessa <laughs> and honestly steals the show. She did great work with very limited, uh, character. Yeah. Um so she's A sort plus of like the, the the Ursula uh <laughs> transformation into an IG model. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like when the the necklace is ripped away from her and she's like doing the scream it was a really good scream. She made it work. 
Um, I would like to speak briefly about uh, Oscar winner Javier Bardem <laughs> as King Triton, who is mostly, you know, doing motion capture underwater or whatever. And it's, again, not a character with a lot of depth. So, pun intended. Despite being yeah, in the depths. So, it, I don't know. He, he just kind of looks like Solemn or whatever. But <laughs> the end... The last 10 minutes, I've, I'm glad I stayed because I was treated to images of Javier Bardem floating in a water tank and trying to act. And it was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And just like bobbing along somewhere in Manhattan Beach, I guess, just being like, I hope you will come back to me and just looking asleep. I like I spent a lot of time wondering what that paid for. Mm hmm. Um, I was thinking, like, maybe, like, some sort of, like, tax bill, you know, in somewhere in one of the European countries uh, that was—but I, I hope it went to good use for him. I hope Penelope Cruz is eating well. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my hope for, I, for that I mean, wonderful I think she couple. is. I think that Chanel is is paying her just fine. That's a so, good point. So, tough, tough scene. Very funny, but a tough scene from him. But the thing is, is, like, it, he wasn't good. No, he's bad. He was in complete autopilot in the he, whole movie. He's, he's also, Javier Bardem. He's one of the most exciting actors alive. And he's taken on a character that has really no shape whatsoever, that is just angry dad, and done nothing with it. And it just leaves me wondering why. Like, why, is this just the most cynical thing you could possibly do? And of course, the movie is making a lot of money in the United States. I mean, what, he, reinforcing bad habits of movie makers. Like. Probably three days from Javier Bardem, don't you think? One day in the water tank, two days being like, no, I don't hope, go to the surface. Humans are bad. I hope it was all worth it for him. I think it probably was, honestly. I think that's why he did it. I Is this stuff worse than usual this year or is it just the same and we've just been going through the motions for a long time now? I think in, I, I was going to say, I think this one is actually better than the other ones released this year in terms of Disney live actions. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that actually is the broad takeaway which, is that this which is, an is improvement. tough. Yeah. But that's the bar. I mean, come on. We need to have standards. That's silly. Like th this animated movie exists. It's on Disney Plus. It's fantastic. I, I don't get it. Put it, I, I don't, why won't they just put the original back in theaters? Like, what is it because no, that's something it just is not enough of a financial. But like, why isn't it enough of a financial incentive for them? Is it is it like the rights? Do they are they negotiating better deals this time around? I I don't know the are answer the to that. Movie theaters saying no. I think consumers don't respond in the same way. Like, do you remember in two? I want to say it was two thousand. Maybe it was nineteen ninety eight um, or ninety nine at the twenty fifth anniversary when they reissued the Star Wars films in theaters. It was a big mm -hmm. deal. Obviously, George Lucas like added a couple of new things to the films, but. That the movies did gangbusters in yeah. the movie theaters. And as recently, you know, we, we people joked about how um, it was the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi this year. Oh, right. Yeah, and, no, they did it recently. I, I couldn't go. And I, I, they were like, it was open for two weeks, I think. And then they took it out of theaters. I didn't really see what impression it made at the box office, but probably not very big. Why is that? Why can't you put older films in theaters and drive audience to it anymore? Especially a movie as beloved as The Little Mermaid. I don't know. It might just be that it's available on Disney Plus for free. That, that's a huge part of it. And The Vault, which I think you might have mentioned to me when we were talking yeah. about this, they kind of eliminated that whole strategy by putting everything on Disney Plus. I think that they're going to start to take that stuff down. I think yeah. that, that that's like one of the moves that they're going to make now is they're going to just well, go back to 1982. Yeah, that's right. We were talking about The Vault because we were like, where were we? Were we in the British Museum or something? And then you were like, 
people are. Pre- oh no no no! We no, were we literally gazed upon the Rosetta Stone. And we said <laughs> we how did... wonderful it is that we can watch the rescuers <laughs> down under. Sean, Chris, and I did go see the Rosetta Stone, which was some sort of metaphor uh, that I can't really unpack right now. No, we were literally we were taking a cab from Heathrow. Mm-hmm. To, to London, and I'm just being like, look, there are buses. Look, they have two levels. <laughs> yeah. Whoa! I'm like, the Tims is right over there. And you're like, seems like they're taking a lot of stuff off of Disney+. Plus. And I was just <laughs> like, I need you <laughs> to be here with me. <laughs> it was a long flight. In the, it, was, it was a long flight, and you had a lot of Twitter to catch up on. But yeah, they... they they're, they put stuff in the vault all the time. It's not a new strategy. It definitely, as you said, sucks for all of the filmmakers who would like to be able to access their hard-earned work and have it be seen, and it's not available. But, I mean... It was a fair point. That finances, there was a time... finances have been managing this for some time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's actually an interesting way to kind of bring this back to where we started, which is that we also got comfortable with this idea of having everything at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. And so... You never had any anxiety about something seeming special because if you wanted to, you could watch it. Like, if you just want to stream, like, Citizen Kane, you can just watch it. I know. Like, I, it's, it's remarkable awesome. to me how—I mean, it, it, that's the thing. It's a paradox. It is awesome. It's wonderful if you are a thoughtful and considerate person who wants to learn. But it's scary— because it's easier to ignore in a way because you can just be like, it'll be there for me at some point. I'll get around to it. But for now, what I need to watch is, you know, the new season of, um, what is the Netflix dating show that is that is co- about to come back? Uh, the Ultimatum. The Ultimatum, you know? And it's oh, like, what happens on that? I, like eight couples arrive. You brought it up, not me. I, I'll, I'll, I'll I'm watching you. Citizen Kane. This was, no, you're not. You're not. So don't tell me that you are. Eight couples arrive. I watch... Snippets of singing in the rain every damn day. In an, an attempt American to narcotize your child, not in an attempt to celebrate the great works. Um, both. We're celebrating them. <laughs> I think, I, I, I can't explain the ultimatum. I don't want to do that. Okay. It's just, people are like confronted by their partner and they're like, it's do or die, marry me or don't. And then they go into a weird dating pool because of that ultimatum that is set. It's a, it's a terrible show. It's like, okay. a, it's a, it's destructive in our culture and it makes me sad. But, do you watch it? I was watching it because my wife watches it. Why is Eileen doing that? Because Eileen, to her credit, if she has a hard day, she wants something. She doesn't want Citizen Kane. It's 10.30 p.m. She's trying to go to sleep. She wants to watch something she doesn't have to think hard about. She doesn't yeah, have to engage I mean, with that I deeply. I feel that way too. It's and that's just, the truth for yeah. most people. I, I feel that way as well. So all of that stuff still exists for TV. Like TV is still TV, but also it's movies. And movies are not movies. Mm-hmm. And movies are The Little Mermaid. Yeah. No, it's bad. I mean, it's really bad I, out there. I know I started this by giving you a hard time being like, oh, you're going to do this again? No, like shit sucks. <laughs> uh, it's it's really tough. And they only make one Top Gun Maverick every 20 years and they only make one Tar every, you know, 10 years and everything else is sort of sanctimonious garbage. But, um, <laughs> and and then a lot of people like, form weird parasocial relationships with like demonic monsters like Kendall and Shiv Roy. It's it's tough times. Yep. Have you been watching my Kendall fan cams though? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're really good. I feel like I really get I him. have spent a lot of time on the Succession Fashion Instagram handle which mm-hmm. was uh, pointed out to me by my friend Lauren Sherman who r- wrote about Succession Fashion for Puck. Um, 
they aren't updating it enough with Harriet Walters fashion, which is where I am. Yeah. That's the mom. Uh-huh. That's uh, FaceX. Caroline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I need to know what's where she's sourcing her stuff. She was wearing YSL at the um, at the funeral, but okay. that's not really the kind of day to day look I'm going for. You should just start dressing that way, like black <laughs> funeral suit every day to work. That's kind of your. That's one of your personas. You are like you're a the, funeral suit. Well, you're like you come to eulogize all sure. the things I like. You know, you're just yeah. like, you are stupid idiot who yeah. likes dumb shit and I will now destroy it. Yeah. Um, so you start crying like so, Roman and then I come in and I'll be like, it was great, but it is over. Uh, and it was world building, but it was evil. You might be more of a Ewan if I think about it. Okay, you know? that's great. Or, yeah. You know, and I'm like this awful magnificent force. I could only hope to be like right. all my heroes and yeah. yet I'm stuck with this fucking waste our bullshit. Um, can I ask you guys a question about Succession? Yeah. So your characterization of the show about was that it's about terrible people doing terrible things, which I think is true if you take it in totality. But episode to episode, it is also like the funniest piece of culture yeah. that we have. I agree. An incredible and comedy. Yeah. That is the same way with Sopranos. It was like the funniest. It's like one of the funniest shows ever made, but also they're brutally murdering people every 30 minutes. You are 100% right. Yeah. Why is TV the only place that we kind of accept this tonal anachronism in writing? Because we don't accept it in movies anymore. Like, we don't have movies that are terrible, people doing terrible things, but also unbelievably funny. And that, that are, like, very rare in the last, like, 10 or 15 years. Like, Phantom Thread is a good example. The movie that you guys just screened in London yeah. in front of a live crowd. They're it's not like, doing anything. Maybe one I of- think that's... I think well, they're that's not doing a very terrible things, but it, which no. is exactly, but it is kind of like high it's stakes it's drama. She's poisoning him. Interpersonal drama, but it's so king. funny. They're finding a way. I, it's a very good question, Bobby. I think part is it just because writers or or TV executives are like more accepting of that kind of tone to tone shift episode to episode because like when they try to do it in movies, it just seems like the movie is a mess. I think there's there's leeway in either direction. Um, I think writers on television have both more freedom but are still more bound by formula. So it's a little hard to say. I mean, Barry is actually an interesting counterpoint to a lot of this. And this is something that Andy has been saying on The Watch for weeks now since the fourth season has been going on, which is that that show has way more in common with movies now because it is it is the work of a single person's vision who isn't doing everything on the set but is fully conceiving, writing, and directing lots and lots of the show. And so because of that, Andy's been using the word autorist. And I, I think that that's right. And it just feels, it feels like the Coen brothers. It feels like David Lynch. It feels like Martin Scorsese. It feels like someone who has a strong, like they're, 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 the fingerprints are deep. Like when they touch something, you can't help but know that it's theirs. And that's so rare in any kind of movie now. Like there's no MCU yeah. movies where you're like, oh my God, this is so clearly Destin Daniel Cretton. You know, like it, I, I like his movies, but you can't watch one of his Marvel movies and be like, oh, well, this is so obviously theirs. Even Ryan Coogler in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, I was like, where's Ryan Coogler in this? Like, where is he? Why is he not? Speaking of three Disney movies all set almost entirely underwater oh, in the last yeah, couple of years, Wakanda Forever, Avatar 2, and mm-hmm. now this Little Mermaid movie. Anyway, I think that that is so interesting that that is an opportunity. Andy didn't seem to think that that was very replicable, the hater situation. But that was a world where clearly, like, he was doing a very similar thing that you just described, where there's really, really laugh-out-loud funny moments in that show, but two-thirds of it is, like, brutally bleak and dark and kind of upsetting, honestly. And 
I, I don't know why it's easier to get away with that or it makes more sense in a TV format because you're living with those characters for a longer period yeah, of time. Yeah, but you also, you just, you have more room in TV, which I think can be yeah. a, a blessing and, and like allows you to massage that tonal shift. And you really can accept multiple tones within an episode or a or television, you or know, a season. A season. Yeah. As opposed to a movie where if like the if you if it's totally all over the place, you're like, okay, well, this doesn't make any sense. So I think the room that TV affords can be a hindrance in other ways, but in terms of that, like the comedy and the hang moments and the all of the fun stuff, mm-hmm. it's I mean it's it's the best. Succession is the face eggs is like so funny. Blobs of jelly rolling around, God bless. Really good stuff. Like, I'm thinking of, like, L to the OG. Like, you try to drop that into a movie nowadays, like, it would just be a total bomb. But on TV, you know, in the hands of a creator who knows where to cut himself off, clearly, Jesse Armstrong knew to end this show before it became just him writing different versions of L to the OG for six straight seasons. I I, I think that that's true. I think that it's enticing to those people. I think it's enticing to those types of creators. And I think it's a pipeline question of who is going to TV and who is going to movies. It's still, it's hard to be succession though. I mean, I appreciate the boldness. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know, this, I, Bill and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesse Armstrong is in his 50s. He's been writing television for 25 years. Yeah. I mean, he's extremely accomplished and has had a lot of experience. And so if you're a 31-year-old aspiring TV writer, you know, you're, in all likelihood, you're not going to write succession. I, I think you're also probably not going to write Tar. And so you know right. that. And frankly, Tar is a more finite experience. And... Um, I don't know what's what would be considered kind of more lucrative, either financially or kind of creatively. It's a little hard to say at this point. I think it'll probably change person to person. Some people like to have a job, you know, where they're like, my job is that I make this show and that I've been doing it for the last eight years. And some people like to move from project to project. Movie people are circus people. You know, they go from town to town, basically. And so I, I don't know. It's a little hard to say why specifically certain tones work or certain it's a little easier to take a certain kind of a risk it's also you know part of the dubious nature of this proposition that i've brought to us here is like succession is the best show in the last five years like in my mind yeah like absolutely not close. Yeah. no and because yeah. of that it's i don't want to be draw too many dramatic conclusions away from it but it does i can't get out of my head that weird little best picture data point of like why are all these movies like so uplifting is it because well but i mean those are the ones that win, which is a whole different ball game of what a group of people are voting for. And that starts bringing in virtue signaling. That starts bringing in, like, you know, it's often a but response succession to— has won twice in a year, tw- twice in a row, and is going to win a third season. And that's the same thing. The Emmys are voted out for in the same fashion. I guess so. I don't really take the Emmys very seriously. I don't take them seriously either. <laughs> I just, I'm like, I don't really But we shouldn't be like taking a... the Oscars as seriously, as, seriously yeah, as we do. that's true. So, succession winning— and Green Book winning tells me a lot more about the Oscars than it does about the Emmys. Most people agree that Succession is the best show. No one agrees that Green Book is the best movie, right. except for the Academy. Right. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm, let me put it this way. I'm fine, and everything is fine. <laughs> okay. Um, if, you, if you listen to Christian Munju, you will know that everything is not fine. And uh, there are actually even deeper ways to examine some of these very frivolous issues that we've explored today. But I enjoyed exploring it with you guys. I, I feel like we came to some important conclusions. And uh, as usual, this will be the last episode ever recorded of the show because the art forms are dead. Okay. Um, Unrelated. Did, did you have Chris do the Rosetta Stone in Wayne Jenkins' voice? And if so, did you save the video for the JMO Patreon? Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn! Didn't know we have civilization on Locker here. Yeah. 
Um, That's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time with Chris. I, I miss Chris so much. Chris, come back from Europe. We come miss back you, and, buddy. And be with us. Um, all right, let's go to my conversation with Christian Munji. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you want to save money this year, I have a simple, surefire way to do it. Switch to Mint Mobile. For a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash bigpick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. The relatable stories, oinks and giggles have made her preschooler's first best friend, helping them navigate everyday life with unabashed exuberance. And now you can discover new playtime adventures with your little ones. Jump into spring and hunt for muddy puddles in Peppa's caravan playset. Hit the road for endless adventures and have heaps of fun with Peppa's whole family. Oinks and giggles are guaranteed. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. Very honored to be joined by Christian Manjiu. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Christian, you're well known for pulling from real life or anecdotes or stories that you've heard for your films historically. For RMN, I'm curious what it was you were seeing and hearing about that was transpiring in Romania that made you want to make this film. There was um, an incident which is not so different uh, from what you see in the film. The film fictionalizes instant tries to understand what are the deep roots for what happened. But the incident was like this, right before the pandemics, uh, in a tiny village in Transylvania, which is part of Romania, in this uh, small community, uh, a small town inhabited mostly by Hungarians, uh, lacking uh, labor locally because very many people left. Um, somebody owning this kind of bakery, like a bigger bakery, like a factory somehow, decided that they couldn't move on uh, only based on the local force, and they opened up this idea of bringing foreigners. And they brought foreign workers from Asia to work in this factory, and the community reacted. And first of all, it was a local thing. They reacted there, and they talked among themselves. Uh, but little by little, uh, the, the conflict uh, became uh, bigger. And it became bigger the moment when um, um, they decided to have this uh, reunion of the community, which ended up in this kind of town hall meeting in which everybody could expose his own arguments, why for, why against. And eventually they voted. So if you want in an 
in a democratic way somehow, they decided that they don't want that their community um, gets to be open to people coming from outside. And of course, there's a context because of this, because um, for years being uh, a my living in minorities in these uh, villages with a different religion and a different language, they were always trying to preserve what they they felt as their identity, their, their, their traditions, the religion. And this is why they, they were not too much opened up, but to the majority to start with. But it stayed as a, as a habit, if you want. And the other thing um, connected to this is that... Um, I'm sorry to say this, but it wasn't connected to the stereotypes of these people coming and to the color of their skin. If the foreign workers brought there would be, I don't know, Italian or Finns, uh, probably nobody would have said anything. But uh, And nobody has had anything with these people in particular coming from Sri Lanka. They had some problems with the local, local Roma population, which is considered to be uh, difficult to, to live next to. And they had created very um, well-organized um, societies for themselves, villages, structures, organizations. And they prefer that they are not penetrated by people from outside who cannot really respect rules. And that was the context. Uh, the moment somebody had the idea of recording this town hall meeting and placing it on the internet, the, the scandal started. And it was first a, a local scandal in Romania. Uh, it got to the press, and after it got to the press, it got to the moment when the prime minister had to interfere and say, hey, people, you know, you cannot behave like this. And it created a lot of emotions. Very many people uh, decided to help these foreign workers and everybody wanted all of a sudden to hire them in some other places. Um, so the, the, there was this uh, huge turmoil of opinion and I got you know, the feeling that all of a sudden what was different in this case was coming from two different sources. You would imagine that a population which is a minority in a country would be more empathic to people coming from somewhere else and being even a smaller minority. But on the contrary, they were not. And I learned later on, on why. And on the other side, what was interesting is that they thought they were somehow naive and they thought that it's still possible in the world of today to speak in public and to express yourself in public uh, as if you know, you're very honest and you speak in your family with the others. And uh, that's okay. But Actually, they, they learned that today nothing is, is private. Everything is public. And somebody was recording and all of a sudden they discovered that they are considered to be, I don't know, the most xenophobic people in, in Europe, even if, of course, they don't see at all themselves like this. And starting from here, I thought that it can be a very good starting point for a story about us today, about the state of the world about the difference, if you want, between um, the truth and what you say publicly, because, you know, the film is connected with these ideas of political correctness that um, prevents people from, from saying what they think, but it, 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 it doesn't prevent them from thinking that way, you know, for, for that you need a different mechanism. And little by little, I thought that 
what happened in this village is very representative for what happens in the world today. And I hope that people who watch this film, and I noticed this in the in the last year of screenings across the world, they realize that it's not about Romania, it's not about Transylvania. Transylvania stands for what, I don't know, Europe is today, the world is today. This kind of, of, of conversations could happen, unfortunately, pretty much everywhere in the world today. When you see these events and you start reading about what's transpiring or watch this video of this town hall meeting, does, does you, your mind immediately go to dramatizing what you're seeing or does it take a long period of time to kind of process what you've seen? I recognize them from the beginning as incidents having some potential of talking about more insightful things. But then there's a process. There's a longer process for, for this one. It was a process of some one year, I think. So like one year later, I started thinking about this, um, making a film starting from this, the moment when I was trying to convince somebody else to make a film about this. There were some, some younger filmmakers I was working with, and I told them, look, this is an interesting story, but I didn't have the time to think deep down about all the meanings. Um, I will tell you what this is about, and maybe you can develop something. And the moment I took the time to think about all the things that this story can tell, like uh, this this, this, this uh, clash between the animal inside of you and the human part that you have inside of you, between the individual and the group in society and the process in which you lose your individuality and you become, I don't know, a little part of a bigger group with no individuality whatsoever and you conform to the, to, to the opinion of the majority. And uh, the, it was that moment when I decided that I might work on it myself because it had a lot of layers. Uh, sometimes, you know, I get to, to the meaning of, the, of these layers easier, sometimes not. Uh, but what's difficult at the end of this process, once it, it, it clarifies for me what are the themes that I want to speak about, what's difficult is to manage to find, if you want, the visual equivalence of all these abstract ideas, because it's film at the end. And uh, these, th these things should come out organically somehow from this whole film and not through blinds or through words that somebody says. And this is why the film is uh, interpretable. And this is why uh, it's abstract in some moments for some of the spectators, because finally it replicates somehow the way life is, if you want. And that's the whole point of my, my, my cinema. Life doesn't come to you interpreted. It, you know, it doesn't care at all about you. It just happens. And it's up to you, to your uh, moral beliefs and context to make something out of it and to give it some sense. And that's always going to be uh, according to the, you know, to your education and information that you have, and you're going to make a sense of it. What's interesting about uh, my films and about this one in particular is that because I abstain from pushing in my own opinion about the situation, I just try to relate it in a very objective way, allowing space for everybody to express their opinion. Um, people end up by, um, uh, by, by feeling that nobody tells them what to believe. And that's a good feeling. If you can still make people think using cinema, it means that Cinema still has a purpose. It's not just entertainment. It's not just, you know, completely lost. And it's not just uh, 
material for adolescents. I do find your films to be non-judgmental, but I I immediately interpret them. And it, I'm sure it's my completely emotional, subjective point of view, but I have strong takeaways from all of your films. This one in particular, you know, the film could have just been about xenophobia uh, in a small community. That would have been a rich enough topic, but there are so many bigger concepts like man's relationship to nature. There's class conflict. There's aging and the kind of desecration of the body. There's equitable pay in the workplace. There, there are all of these. And there's love and romance and the complexity of that. There's so many different things that you're digging into. It felt like the widest scope of a film that you've made. And also, your the approach that you've used, I think, is the first time you've used kind of this fragmentary number of different characters, POV. Typically, we're with a small number of characters, if not just one. And I was wondering if you could talk about, did you expand that because you had so much on your mind when you were making this? Well, as you, as you can imagine, it's not easy to tell such a complicated story and such a complex story with the, so many layers and to make sure that the narrative advances logically and quite fast uh, towards its purpose. But at the same time, the characters develop their motivation is more or less clear, as clear as they understand it, but there are some changes. And also you touch all these layers of meaning that you need to touch in, 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 your, in, in an attempt of, you know, making a portrait of the nowadays society, finally. It's, it's not easy in two hours in cinema. So um, there's just one change uh, stylistically uh, in this film, different from what I did before. The fact that I haven't used one main, one main character with one individual perspective as I did for the previous four films, this, this time there are two. It's like a dialogue. And because the film, it's a lot about how subjective the truth became to be today. And it's also about this idea that, you know, in this postmodern era, you can't, you People keep telling you that there isn't just one truth. Everybody has its own truth, which is a very dangerous and relative uh, thing to, 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 to consider because uh, you need to have some solid base on which you, 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 you can express what are the principles of morals in society today. The film is also talking about communication, communicating with the other, about dialogue, because you know, you, you, you can have a conversation with somebody only when you are willing to listen to the other. If not, people are, will be talking, but that's not a conversation. And I think that communication is important if you want to hope that you can change something socially, like xenophobia. Well, you know, I think that the process, the natural process is of trying to listen to these people because obviously they are displeased of something. So you cannot just tell them, hey, that's not legal. You cannot say this. Or you can, but you won't get anywhere with this. You just, uh, I don't know, forbid people to say what's what's not correct, but nothing of their inner uh, choices and opinions are going to be changed. So you should listen to them and you should engage into some sort of conversation if you wish that you change some something of what they think. And from this from this perspective, the film was also trying to speak about, I don't know, the limits of democracy the way we knew it, because it shows you that unless you have invested mm, well in educating people prior to asking to their opinion, democracy might not lead you to the right results, or it does, but, you know, it's it's a way of saying that, you know, we, we chose in a democratic way a bad solution. 
And this shows you that there's a lot of responsibility that people should have, and not people, structures, state structures, all of us should have in education, because if not today, um, it's very difficult to, to um, educate people in this uh, very global world in which they are assaulted with so much information and so difficult to distinguish the truth from the fake news. And it's so difficult to make sure that you are thinking with your own mind and your own ideas. You are so easy to manipulate that you might be using the arguments of some something somebody else without even checking. So there were a lot of uh, 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 there was a lot of thinking of how to do this, and I wrote a few versions of the screenplay. And what helped a lot is that uh, in the middle of this process, first of all, I investigated very well what happened on the real situation, and I went over there. And I talked to people there and they were quite nice and quite open and they talked to me and I learned a bit more about the community and their, about their reasons. Um, and I could rewrite the first version of the screenplay. And then, you know, what happened? I went to Cannes. I went to Cannes to pitch my project one way a year before shooting for my uh, distributors. And I had to talk so much about the context. Then I realized that... Um, you know, I needed to introduce some of this context in, this, in the film as well, because people, well, you know, they knew very little about, uh, they barely know where Romania is, but Transylvania is still, what about Transylvania? There's no Dracula over there. It's a part of Romania, but it's a part of Romania with a specific history. There are Hungarians there, there are Germans there, nobody knew why, why the Hungarians are not even at the border with Hungary, they are in the middle of, the, of, the, of Romania and so on. Why are there so many religions? So I talked and talked and talked to them, and I was trying to explain somehow the developments of the countries of today and the populations based on historical development. Because, you know, we like to think about Europe as a continent uh, with people sharing the same view about the future. But to be honest, that that's a good uh, ideal, but there are a lot of different populations there and peoples there with very different uh, historical developments. Um, so I came back and I was trying to reorganize all this material and make sure that all the themes that I wanted to have in the film were coming, um, were introduced in the film logically from the situation. They were still realistic or could be explained realistically because some of the moments in the film could also be um, explained, I don't know, metaphysically if you want. But still, there's a realistic explanation for everything. And by the end, I could only hope that the film is not too abstract in some moments. I think I failed. I think it's too abstract, to be to be honest. <laughs> I don't agree, yeah. but that's interesting. Well, you know, I had to answer so so many times the, the questions about the, the, the bears. and um, But uh, finally, I think that Somehow the film succeeds to have all these threads put together in an advancement which um, follows not only the development of the characters, but the development of the situation, trying to bring arguments in which you understand that it's not only about this village, that it speaks through this village about what happens today in a, in a bigger world. It's interesting going to Cannes and having to explain that context because this is basically the fifth film of yours in which something 
very small and a very localized experience is extremely universal for so many people. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine people must be coming up to you and talking about four months, three weeks, and two days in the United States and everything that's happened here in the last 12 months. is It's extraordinary re- resonant right now. Um, I did want to ask you about that town hall sequence, though, because you've kind of recreated and reimagined it and it is this bravura piece of filmmaking over, I think, 17 minutes. Can you just tell me about the making of that sequence and what went into executing on that? First of all, I, I like to say something about the, the need of having a scene like this that long. It comes from um, a decision that I make before shooting. I make, I you know, when I'm writing the screenplay, I analyze what I've learned new about cinema in case I've learned anything new. Um, and I decided that I will keep on going with my idea about cinema in the sense that it is the only art alongside with music that can show you how time passes. You can feel this evolution of time on condition that you don't use editing. And all the films that I created since four months are based on this principle. Okay, some some scenes can be shorter, some can be longer, but I don't, I don't do coverage. And little by little, I developed this craft of being able to present even a complex situation, even a I don't know, a a fight scene by just using one single perspective of the camera. And there are a lot of other, if you want, ethical principles that the camera needs to use and that I need to use. I mean, I don't move the camera unless there's a movement. So what we try to do is um, to get as, as, as close as possible to this kind of objectivity. You are already very manipulative and make a lot of choices as a filmmaker. So... I don't want to get over the top and cut a piece from the material and say, that was not important. You just get back directly to this and watch this guy now closer and watch this other guy. I'm trying to make this kind of mise-en-scene, this kind of situation in such a way in which I can follow it just with one position of the camera. As you can imagine, this is not um, easy. And... um, there's usually just one position of the camera which covers it better than all the others. You learn soon that you will win some coherence, but you will lose some. And very often you will lose uh, the face of this other guy talking. So you need to be very creative when placing people. And you need a level of precision, which is unlike anything that people do in cinema. It's kind of easy to to make cinema when you're doing coverage you know anybody can do this and you can you know put the pieces together and then add some music and everything is glued together and it flows but uh, this is like working with with bare hands if you want i it's like organizing a, a a show i organize a situation as in theater if you want and then i record it but everything needs to be perfect technically because unfortunately, you know, cinema is a technical thing. You need to record the sound of everybody, the camera work, the light. Uh, sometimes I turn the camera all around, so it's very difficult for lighting. But it, it needs to be perfect in terms of interpretation, because interpretation is very important for me. Even if uh, besides Romanians or Hungarians in this film, people don't understand um, what people say, there is a feeling of how they act, if this is right or not. So casting and interpretation are very important for me. And, you know, I developed a lot of experience 
that's the only benefit of getting gold. You know, you lose a lot of innocence and freshness, but you get to be a better craftsman. So I knew from the beginning that I needed to organize this scene as well in just one shot because I needed to be coherent with the style of the film. So I didn't know while writing how am I going to do this, but once I got to the set, I needed to tackle the regular situation that I have when people talk to one another, that they face one another. So when people face one another, you don't have many options. Uh, you can be behind them, you can show just one of them, or you can be aside. I had uh, very many people in the audience, so I needed to see them. I had some people behind the camera, so I started by uh, showing them and then moving to the camera. And then I did a few you know, smaller tricks, like I used a lot of windows on the end of that uh, town hall, especially for people which were off camera, just to give them the feeling that they are in the shot. Okay, they were very small, but for actors, you know, it, it means a lot when somebody asks you to come and play for 17 minutes and you know you're off camera, it's going to be difficult for you as, a, as an actor to focus. And then what I did, um, I was trying to find the right position for everybody from which he could deliver his text. And I did this following the dialogue. I was using uh, some logs. I was having these pieces of logs because they, they uh, hit with wood. So before asking the actors inside, I was putting all the logs over there just to make sure who talks with him and when. And I came up with this kind of setup in which I brought the actors. Um, and, you know, everything seemed very logical, except that when we started shooting, nothing worked, as it happens in when, you know, in the first day of a, such a difficult scene. Because having the right rhythm um, was based on being very precise with your lines and with the moment when your lines were supposed to be delivered. So it was quite difficult by the end of the day. Uh, I have to say that I only had two days of shooting this. Normally, they prepare this in like two weeks in theater. I had one day of preparation and two days of shooting. I talked to the to the actors by the end of that day. I said, look, this is difficult. It's the most difficult thing I did. It's the most difficult thing you're going to do in cinema. Uh, I just need one thing. By tomorrow morning, you need to know precisely what your lines are and when you have to deliver. That, that's all. Besides this, I'm going to, to handle it. And the next day, it was a bit better. It always helps when you let people sleep over. And something very important that happened the next day was that we learned something. You know, you make a lot of choices in cinema because you made them before. But actually, the progress in cinema comes when uh, you challenge your decisions or the decisions that people are normally making. And, you know, all of a sudden, after telling the extras, shut up, the actors are focusing, shut up, uh, pretend that you are talking. I realized that that kind of, you know, pretending is not the real thing. And the actors, instead of, of, of being helped, they were somehow frustrated about that silence. And in the last half, uh, in the last uh, half a day and in the second day of the shooting, I decided that I will allow for once for all the extras to express themselves the way they wanted. And I talk to them, I say, hey, you are artists as well today. So your opinion matters. For once, I have this option of really shooting and creating and working with a, with a collective character coming directly from the Greek antiquity. And it's you. So express yourselves. Of course, I couldn't shoot once they started shouting. But a few takes later, 
I managed to somehow direct the level of the temperature of their reactions in a very physical way. And this, this helped a lot the actors of, uh, as well. It brought a lot of real adrenaline, the right rhythm, uh, the right energy, and all of a sudden people needed to fight to deliver their line. So we got to have it closer together little by little. As always, I was changing a little bit of things uh, from one take to the other. And it's, it was somehow, uh, it got to be agglutinated enough so that you can have this, this little fight at the end. That's not easy to have 17 minutes after you told them how to do this. So it was, it felt quite, quite organic. And then the other thing that we did, we recorded this with the, we had three different sound engineers and some 25 microphones. It was very, very difficult to mix, I would say. But uh, in the mixing process, I realized that by encouraging people to express themselves, I got use of a lot of sidelines that I couldn't hear on the set while a, a, a sort of cut down from what they said was, was delivered to me in my uh, headphone earphones. So I could mix it and it sounds very nice in if you manage to understand these languages because there's the language of the, the main dialogues and there are people talking behind and then you hear a lot of individual lines. And probably the other major decision that I, I, I had to make there, I realized that you know, um, the essence of such a reunion is that everybody speaks at the same time. People don't wait for the others. And that was also the feeling of Babel Tower that I wanted to have. Nobody's listening. Everybody's talking. There are a lot of languages, but that's not the problem for which they don't understand one another. So what I did, I had some 24, 25th pages of dialogue, and I decided to overlap the, the first seven pages with the next. And now you have to decide to which of the characters you listen when the, the, the scene plays. And that, that was a, a way of keeping it together um, and of focusing on the main characters which are in front of the camera because it was important for me to deliver this, this situation as if it's from the point of view of Chila and Matthias who are uh, in front of the camera. He doesn't want to be part of it. He still believes that uh, you don't have um, the social obligation of having an opinion. He learns by the end of the scene that you do have it and you do have a responsibility even if you don't want to have an opinion. And she is there in the scene mostly to speak about this need of um, preserving your principles and fighting as an individual for yourself and for your opinion, even against everybody else from the mob. It's funny watching the film. There is a sequence at a, a dining table earlier in the film. And as I saw it, I was like, Oh, I know this, this move. You've made this move in previous films. It's interesting that he is calling back to this. And then when we get to the town hall sequence, it feels like an elevation, like a, like an action sequence version of the dining room table, kind of static objective idea it's just, it's a, it's truly amazing. Um, quickly, you know, you mentioned the word metaphysical and I wrote surreal in my notes here. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about introducing that concept or that expectation for the audience, which feels like a pretty significant shift from some of your previous work. Some of the ideas that the film want to speak about are not surreal, let's say, but they are very abstract. 
how would you portray in a film fear and anxiety and the evil that you feel happening next to you in the world? You need some sort of formal expression for this. And very often people are afraid not of what they see in their most horrible nightmares, about the things that you don't see, about the things coming from the dark, about the things that, that you can't take away. And I really wanted to speak about the anxiety that people feel today in front of a, of a very troubling future, you know, because a lot of these uh, reactions in the film of uh, uh, just not being friendly with the others come from this fear that the world is coming to an end closer than we imagine. Because 10 years ago, 25 years ago, we could imagine that at some point we were watching, you know, the, the uh, science fiction films of the 80s, Mad Max, okay, we will fight for resources, it might be a bit warm someday, but we live today and it's warmer uh, already and we are very many on the planet and uh, it's not clear in which kind of life our children are going to live. And there's a sort of a panic and anxiety, but how can you portray this into a film? There's another thing. Uh, in such a small, you know, people do not really think rationally. Uh, well, you know, part of their thinking is rational, but there's a lot of emotional and uh, there's a lot of very irrational kind of thinking uh, based on this kind of child perspective in which uh, things uh, signify something. And this is the way decision are, decisions are made. Decisions are not fully rational. If you ask somebody why he decided something, he doesn't really know. You know, it comes it comes somehow naturally from him. Uh, so it was important for me to reach these levels and to speak about something which is the most difficult thing to speak in a film. Why? What is somebody thinking about now when he's not talking? He's not talking. He's in front of the camera, but he's thinking about something. I want to that for the spectators to have an idea about what he could be thinking about. Of course, you cannot be sure, but it's difficult to um, to deliver this kind of hint. And then you need external situations that would place you in the position of associating ideas and maybe saying, well, it might be about this. And for example, you know, for me, the film is also about a new form of migration, because this is what people feel today, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, 1,000 years ago, it was easy to know that the, my, the migrating peoples were coming. They were on horseback, coming from the other side of the hill, uh, I don't know, having a spear. So you, spear, you, you, you would know that they are not tourists. They are not coming to ask you the, about the beauties of the place. They wanted to plunder and take something from you. Nowadays, it's a bit more complicated. People, uh, everybody flies here and there, and it's okay that people come and work some somewhere. And question was for me, how can you talk about the fact that this is the new way in which migrations look, not by mentioning this with words? And for example, this is why we have these, uh, these people on horseback. Nobody asked me this, but... There is this stereotype about the Huns, you know, the ancestors of the Hungarians. 
And uh, in the communist times, uh, when the propaganda was always very strong and very nationalistic against everybody, uh, we used to look up to these people saying that, hey, the ancestors of these people were eating raw meat that they were having under the saddles of their horses and so on and so forth. Um, so all these all these hints, everything which is in the film, the fact that he's having that motorcycle, uh, the dog, uh, the horses, they speak each of them about something. And for example, we have this um, classical poem that we learn in school about uh, the communion between man and nature and the role of the dog and of the sheep. I know that it's going to be easier for people who have never read this to see the connection, but some of it is in the film. Some of it you can get if you read a little bit more. But bottom line, the idea is that if you keep having this connection with the nature and your inner nature, you are going to be connected with the world. The moment you lose it, you float around. And this is why I wanted to, to have all this you know, this layer which can be perceived in the film as, as uh, fantastical somehow. Because, for example, by the end of the film, what happens when people ask me, what is he following and what's what's over there? Well, he doesn't know what he's following, but he feels his, his dog comes and his dog barks. The dog tells him, hey, there's something evil lurking around in, in, in around. And he comes out and he tries to figure out if he, the, his beloved ones are in danger and he gets to the house of his child, he's not there, he can, follows uh, to the house of his uh, wife. And from there, he starts uh, watching and following something which becomes a bit more concrete. He assumes that this creature that he's following might be the, the, the missing worker. Uh, he follows this creature up to the police station, he finds the others, there's Nothing precise there. When he gets out, if you watch the film again, you will see that this creature appears once again physically in the film. We needed a long while to design how precisely this creature uh, could be in the film and what kind of creature this would be. So he follows this creature by the end and uh, he gets into her house. He gets to the woman that he loves, trying to see if she's okay and he's there to protect her. There's a big mis big misunderstanding between them because she feels guilty and he is there to protect her, uh, even if uh, they have learned things about one another in the last two days. And then after he shoots in that uh, uh, beast, in that bear, he believes that is the end of it. So there are these animals uh, who are uh, the source of this anxiety. But a few steps later, you see that there are several entities like this coming from the dark and from the forest, and things are not clear at all any longer. And I like that whenever people were trying to interpret what's there in the forest, they had a lot of different comments and interpretations that they, these are people resting bears, or these are bears, or these are people. But uh, the, the nicer interpretation was that, you know, these are not even real. This is... Um, a kind of interpretation of his fears coming from his inner self, which is a good interpretation for me. That is how I interpreted it as well. I, th I thought the film was simply brilliant, Christian. Um, we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what is the last great thing they have seen? Have you seen any great films recently? Hmm, that's a good one. Um, I, I think I've seen uh, uh, 
pieces that I liked a lot in the last years in films. Um, I like burning quite a lot, I have to say. And I think from last year, I liked uh, Albert Sevar Pacification. Yeah, tell me about that. We just spoke about that on the show recently. What did you like about that film? Well, I first of all, I like something about him and about his very free way of interpreting cinema. I think that it's always important in cinema to have directors who do not just apply the the rules and the principles of this art, and they take time to challenge them, to see if it's possible to do differently. And it's possible to, you know, you, you, you are taking a lot of risks if you do this, and he's taking a lot of risks, first of all, of not being popular as a, as a filmmaker for the audience, but this is how cinema progressed. Cinema hasn't progressed with the blockbusters who brought millions of people in front of, of, of uh, theaters. That's that's a good thing as well. But progress comes from, he's like a researcher of the ways in which you can ex- expand the language of cinema. And I appreciate this. And I appreciate his courage, his boldness of just doing whatever he thinks in a very different method. And I even appreciate that he, he find the means to do this. It's not easy to find people believing in you. You need to be challenged. If you're not challenged as a filmmaker and you think you know all and, you know, I've been doing this, you're dead as a creator. And it's a, it's a process that, you know, every other creator who's still alive somehow inside, it's a process that you need to undergo to every time you make a new film. I'm sorry that I couldn't come up with another better idea of understanding cinema, but I continue looking and looking for it and thinking about it for each other film before I start shooting. I might not come with the right idea, but the, I, I think that this should be an honest process that we should all be taking before making films because you're not just telling stories with images. It's, it's way more complex than this. And it has a lot of ethical implications as well. I think you're a shining example of that as well. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you so much. Thanks to Christian. Thanks to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for his work on this episode later this week on The Big Picture. Amanda and I, maybe some special guests, we're working it out. We'll be digging into the Spider-Verse. We'll see you then. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.